Open your Bibles, if you would, to Second Chronicles chapter 21. We will study the whole chapter tonight. Second Chronicles 21, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariah, Mikael, Shephatiah. And these were all were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father gave them great gifts of silver, gold, and valuable possessions, together with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. When Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword, and also some of the princes of Israel. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David, and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Jehoram passed over with his commanders and all his chariots, and he rose by night and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him and his chariot commanders. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. At that time, Libna also revolted from his rule because he had forsaken the Lord, the God of his fathers. Moreover, he made high places in the hill country of Judah and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom and made Judah go astray. And a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father or in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but have walked in the ways of the king of Israel and have enticed Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom, as the house of Ahab led Israel into whoredom. Also you have killed your brothers of your father's house who were better than yourself. Behold, the Lord will bring a great plague on your people, your children, your wives, and all your possessions, and you yourself will have a severe sickness with the disease of your bowels until your bowels come out because of the disease day by day. And the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the anger of the Philistines and of the Arabians who are near to the Ethiopians. And they came up against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions they found that belonged to the king's house and also his sons and wives, so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. And after all this, the Lord struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great agony. His people made no fire in his honor like the fires made for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he departed with no one's regret. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. The grass withers, the flowers fall. And the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Uh, Father, we thank you for 
the message of Second Chronicles 21, the reign of Jehoram. Oh, Lord, make us wise unto salvation. Give us insight about our own lives, the choices we make, and the path of faithfulness that alone leads to life through Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. After the city of Geneva committed to the Protestant Reformation in the year 1536, the city fathers minted coins with a Latin inscription on them. The inscription was Post Tenebras Lux. It meant after darkness, light. For centuries, you see, the light of God's word had been virtually extinguished in the medieval church. But now it began to shine with a light that extended to the ends of the earth. A long night of darkness had ended, and with the bright message, with the bright dawn, the message of the gospel had been restored in the church. The effects of the Reformation were staggering. With so many people turning to Christ in true faith that it remains the greatest single revival in history since the time of the apostles. Even today, millions of Christians look upon themselves as heirs of the 16th century Reformation. We are among them. We are heirs of the Reformation every bit as we are heirs of the first century outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Well, as glorious and heartening as the words post-Tenebras Luke's are to Christian history, there is an opposite situation, and it can occur just as dramatically. The 25-year reign of Judas King Jehoshaphat had been a time when God's word had shined brightly, mainly through the ministry of the preachers that he sent throughout the land to proclaim the message of God's word. But when he died under the wicked reign of his son Jehoram, the light was put out. Verse 6 says that Jehoram did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So now God's people suffered post-Luke's tenebras, after light, darkness. This sudden and dramatic change and the results that occurred should fill true believers with dread. It should remind us always to be vigilant, both in the pulpit and in the pew in upholding the truth of God's word. Mark Boda comments, with the death of Jehoshaphat, the southern kingdom moves into its first extended period of crisis. It approaches the nadir of despair, threatening the survival of the Davidic line itself. Well, first in this chapter, we see a post-mortem on the reign of Jehoshaphat. He was one of Judah's greatest kings, he deserves to be loved and admired by God's people. One of my goals in preaching Second Chronicles is to introduce people like Jehoshaphat more broadly to God's people. And yet, if we ask the question, how could such a dreadful calamity have happened in his kingdom? The answer is found in Jehoshaphat's failure to observe, observe a very important principle. And that principle is that a man's legacy is decided not in his own life, but in the lives of those who come after. Now, by God's grace, you get a a positive example in the reign of King David, the first in the line of God's covenant dynasty. The the account of David, you can check yourself in the Bible. The record in the Bible of David's death, very significantly, does not occur in the books of Samuel. First and second Samuel tell the story of David's life. But his story doesn't end in Samuel. His story ends in the first chapter of the book of Kings. His life finds its significance historically in an earthly way. 
It's finished, as it were, in the life of his son, in the life of the reign that came after him. So it was for David, that, and it is for all of us, that our lives will conclude in the accounts of our children and our spiritual heirs. Now, according to this principle, Jehoshaphat's end, notably, is, is read not in the previous chapter, which tells of his great reign, of all his virtues, chapter 20. But the death of Jehoshaphat is actually found in chapter 21, which so sadly tells of his wicked son, Jehoram, who undid virtually everything that Jehoshaphat had accomplished. Well, the account of Jehoshaphat's death and burial was fitting for such a great king. Verse 1, Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. He was a great man of faith. He was a very able son of God, a servant of the Lord. And this son of Asa, I love these, I actually love these little notes that he slept with his fathers. And that tells us that he entered into heaven to be in the fellowship of godly men and women from his house. I'm very often asked as a pastor, one of the short list of questions you often get as a pastor, will we know anyone when we get to heaven? I think of the, I often point to the death of Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob. They were gathered to their fathers. Well, so Jehoshaphat, he too entered into the fellowship. He slept with his fathers. The word slept speaks of the appearance of death. His soul was and is alive together in the host of those in glory. He also was buried by God's people in honor among the tombs of the kings. And Jehoshaphat died with a nation at peace, but when Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place, also verse 1, that peace was short-lived. Now, like any dynastic king, Jehoshaphat had to make arrangements for his many sons. And the names of these sons, after the firstborn Jehoram, are listed. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah. Now, the fourth name is Azariah. And you say, did he name two sons, Azariah? Actually, the spelling is slightly different in the Hebrew. It's Azarahu would be the best pronunciation of the fourth child. But then there's Michael and Shephatiah. All these were sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel, verse 2. And following a practice that first, it seems, was instituted by his ancestor Rehoboam, Before he died, Jehoshaphat, on the one hand, he designated his firstborn as heir, but then he granted his other sons important positions in cities and fortresses. He gave them resources to command. Verse 3, their father gave them great gifts of silver, gold, valuable possessions, together with the fortified cities of Judah. Now, Now, the idea was not only to give his other sons useful things to do with their lives, but he was trying to establish a stable succession. He gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn, verse 3. Now, notably, there is no requirement in the Bible for the firstborn son to succeed. Uh, Solomon, you may note, was not the firstborn of David. He was the chosen of the Lord. But by the time of Jehoshaphat, this had become a tradition. Now, in the background of Jehoram's succession were dark clouds. And those dark clouds trace back to the greatest single error of Jehoshaphat's otherwise laudable life. I find it's a sad truth in our corrupted world that very often, uh, even a great man's legacy, someone who did many things for the Lord, will often be governed not so much by the godly choices he made, 
Sometimes there's a single error. You often find it with famous pastors. There's one doctrinal quirk, and they hold on to it. And because they're criticized for it, they defend it. It becomes the hallmark of their ministry. But they're godly people with, with great teaching. There's just one doctrinal quirk. Some of you will be thinking of certain pastors of whom that were true. And then when they die, that one error forms the legacy that carries on and ruins everything they built. That's the kind of thing that happens in our world. It's discouraging But it reminds us that we are not the saviors. Our legacy is never going to be sufficient. How easily our errors will come after us. And so it was for Jehoshaphat. Now his great error was a big one. He allied himself with the northern kingdom of Judah, then governed by the wicked house of Omri, O-M-R-I. And the current occupant of the house of Omri and its throne was the notoriously evil Ahab, and his even more notorious wife, Jezebel. Now, Jehoshaphat was being sentimental. Positively, he he was motivated to honor the historic unity of God's covenant people. In his time, there was the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, but it was all Israel, and he seemed to want to honor that. But it was poor judgment. It earned him a rebuke from a prophet. It exposed his kingdom to the evil influence, even the control, the usurpation by the northern kingdom. Well, no sooner did Jehoshaphat die than the desire results of his mistake came to roost. Look at verse 4. When Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. Now, his father had made arrangements for him. Uh, that's why the kingdom was established in his hand but as is so often true of the wicked one thing the wicked do is that they impute their own motives their own way of thinking to others and if they're not faithful they don't think anybody else is and so he follows the practice very common among the ungodly in the ancient world he has the opportunity and he slays them all with the sword and there's other noble supporters among them they too get slain By so doing, Jehoram weakened the line of the house of David. He did great injury to God's people. Now the explanation for how he came to this way of thinking and acting is not hard to find. Look at how the chronicler summarizes his short reign in verses 5 to 6. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, of course he did. He walked in the ways of the most notoriously evil dynasty of the Old Testament. Now, we're going to learn that Jehoram's wife, she's the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Her name is Athaliah, and she was a woman whose strong will was a match for her wicked heart. We're going to see more of her. Now, for any Christian to marry a non-believer is to violate God's word. And here's an example of how we bring debilitating influences into our lives. Sometimes many unbelievers are very nice people, have many virtues, but we can't be spiritually yoked. What fellowship has light and darkness, Paul argues in 2 Corinthians 6.14. But, but here's one that's absolutely catastrophic. Jehoram's marriage to a daughter of the house of Omri was disastrous to the house of David. What's worse is it was actually arranged by Jehoshaphat. 
It was a common practice of kings, as often has been, you see it among many people today, that marriage is a pawn for ambition. Back then it was royal alliances, now it's career advancement. My friends, marriage is not to be used as a pawn for any other purpose than those given it by the Lord. Marriage is too important. Don't marry for money. Don't marry for prestige. Marry godliness. Marry for godly companionship in the Lord. Marry marry for a holy love that God has given you. Well, this was the wrong, this was a disaster. The arranged marriage of his son Jehoram to the daughter of Jezebel. And of course, whatever benefit Jehoram gained from the example of his great father, it's going to be canceled out by this wife. And the murder of Jehoshaphat's sons was was just the beginning of evil under Jehoram. His reign marked the sudden return of moral and spiritual darkness where the light had been shining. It was post-Luke's tenebras. We, We come to a transition now. We've had a pretty good run. We had Solomon. We then had Rehoboam. That wasn't so good. But we've had Abijah and then Asa and then the great Jehoshaphat. We're entering a new phase of the chronicler's record. It's a time of spiritual darkness. We might call it the Omrization of the house of David. Omri, the dynasty of the northern kingdom. They effectively take over the kingdom of Judah. And the record of this chapter and the chapter after it and the chapter after it are going to show how the house of Omri through Athaliah almost comes oh so close to the actual extinction of God's royal line in the house of David. While Jehoram's godly father walked in the ways of faithful David, for this new king to walk in the ways of the wicked northern kings was ruinous to the nation. Now, so great was the threat to the line of David under Athaliah's influence that it was only God's intervention that prevented a total calamity. Look at verse 7. The Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David. That tells you right now what's really a peril that's beginning. The Lord was not willing, however, to destroy the house of David because of the covenant he had made with David since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Second Chronicles 21.7, a great statement in God's covenant history. You see, in this case, the issue involved was not just one of the many ancient dynasties. You go to a museum, and there's dynasties of this and that, and there's you know, kings you've never heard of, and, and they, they're, they're wiped out. But that's different in this case. Now, it's God's redemptive purposes through the house of David. That's what's at stake. God had made a covenant with David. He promised that his line would never end, First Chronicles uh, 22.10. And the chronicler here uses wonderful imagery. It is a lamp given by God to David forever. The reference seems to be to the ever-burning lamp shining in the temple, symbolizing the Lord's eternal faithfulness. You see, here's a hope for the church, even in its most dilapidated conditions. You think of how it was prior to the Protestant Reformation. But Jesus also made a promise. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 10. My friends, it is only because the Lord is faithful to his promises that in times of darkness, the church may hope for new light. Luke's will come after Tenebras. The church is the bride of the Lord Jesus, and just as Christ must prevail to the glory of God, so also must his church survive, and it will.
Well, the lesson of Jehoshaphat's fateful succession is vital to us today, since our legacy also is shaped not only while we live, but actually it will be determined after we have died, then one of the most, do we realize, one of the most important tasks given to us, to Christian people, while we live is the raising up of those who will follow us. That is one of the most important things we are to do. We are to attend to the godliness and the faithfulness, to the example given and the training of those who will carry on the work of the Lord when we are gone And that means that Christians are not to devote ourselves so exclusively to the work that God has given us. What what a bane it's been for missionaries in prior generations. Oh, I honor missionaries, but there was a tendency for them to not even raise their children. How many of the greatest, some of the most potent enemies of the church today are children raised in missionary families, but they weren't raised there, but they were sent to a boarding school. I, I don't mean to be too harsh, but this is not what we're to do. People like me, people like you, we are not to be committed to the work God has given us to such an extent that we fail the vocation, that vitally important vocation, of raising up children who know the Lord, who were loved, who've been part of a real covenant family, who've seen, they were all flawed people, were sinners, but they've seen grace and forgiveness. They've, they've, they've heard the word of God from the mouth of their father, from their mother. They've been nurtured in the cradle of the covenant. They know the Lord, and there they will be to carry on the work. Do we realize the vital nature of that task, how vital it is to any church? Look, everyone here counts the aged or vitally important. Oh, how we thank God for the aged who's set an example for us in love and faithfulness and service. But there's a right sense in which the children are a particular object of our concern. They will determine our legacy in an earthly sense before the Lord. You know, the same is true for churches. Many once great churches have spiraled into decline post Luke's tenebras. Because a busy, and in some cases an egocentric pastor or spiritual leader, would not attend to his successors. I've known some famous preachers in our time who would not discuss a successor. And now that they have died, the lack of a successor has been very telling and painful. Well, in contrast, churches like families who enjoy a long pedigree of faithful and useful service to the Lord are those that produce not only thrilling outbursts of vitality, but a long and continuous line of godly men, godly women who embrace the calling of carrying on the work of fidelity to God's word and the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let it be so among us. What a thrill. Isn't it a thrill for us? When one of our it's not just when, when one of our daughters goes to the mission field, when one of our interns is ordained, he becomes pastor of a church. It's vital to the work that we do. Now, moreover, we should always remember when we're studying Chronicles that we have two two time periods going on. We are not only reading about events that took place here in the in the late ninth century, early eighth century BC, but also the chronicler himself living and writing in the late early fifth century to that restoration community coming back from the Babylonian exile. And he has a, a point that he's making to his own generation. And that point is that even while the sins of God's people may bring his saving purpose into peril. We can count on the Lord. He's going to fulfill his promises. We are never going to lose. We're going to see this in Jeremiah in many ways. We are never going to lose out by banking on the promises of God, by investing 
in the future according to God's word. He keeps his promises. After Jehoram, the house of David would be placed in the dire peril in the time of chronicler, of the chronicler, 475 maybe BC. There wasn't even a Davidic throne. There was an exiled line. But there was no kingdom at all. But see, he's reminding them God would keep all his promises to David. He, was ca- he would cause the lamp of his people's hope to keep burning. Andrew Stewart comments, the preservation of David's line was a demonstration of God's faithfulness to his promise. His loyalty to David's successors was an acknowledgement of God's unending mercies to Israel. Well, the aftermath of Jehoram murdering his brothers and embarking on the evil policies of Ahab and Jezebel is seen in the sharp decline in his fortunes. That's what we see, the high price he's going to pay. It's really the second point here for his ungodliness. Now, according to human reasoning, he was actually in a very savvy way. He was securing his throne by his acts of evil. Ah, but he forgot. Let's not forget to enter the Lord into the equation. He forgot about the Lord. The Lord who would punish him with the loss of his power, even with the loss of his progeny. Well, the first blow was struck in the east, where the nation of Edom had long been in subjection. It was ruled by deputies of the king in Jerusalem. Uh, Jehoshaphat had secured this very tightly. But the Edomites noticed the change. That this, is, this is what happens when you turn to evil. People notice. They discern that there's a new regime in Judah. It's not a very godly one. And they rightly discern that this foretold weakness among God's people. So, verse 8, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Well, Jehoram heard of this, and very impetuously he raced off to the east, leading a host of chariots. Verse 9, he rode by night and struck the Edomites who surrounded him and his chariot commanders. Now, my friends, that is not the record of a victory doesn't spell it all out, but that's not a great victory to the banner of Jehoram. No, he's forced to flee in the darkness from the kind of ambush that in previous days the Lord had set against the enemies of his people. Well, now Jehoram is the enemy of his people. And it's the king of Judah who's going to be ambushed. He is fortunate to escape with his life. I wonder what he thought about that. He should have consulted the Psalms. He trusted in chariots. David wrote, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 20, verse 7. Well, Jehoram trusted chariots, and he was fortunate to have survived. Now, despots like Jehoram learn that when you fail to control one segment of your empire, you end up encouraging uprisings elsewhere. And and so it goes. The loss of Eden was followed by a revolt. That was to the east, but now there's going to be a revolt to the west. Verse 10, at that time Libna also revolted from his rule because he had forsaken the God of his fathers. Now Libna was a Judahite fortress city to the west on the border between Judah and the land of the Philistines. And I think we can surmise that this may have been one of those fortress cities placed in the command of one of the other sons of Jehoshaphat. And then when he was slain, they weren't that eager to be under the service of so wicked a king who had slain their their, their loyal prince. In this case, Jehoram, he's been morally weakened. He's been materially wounded. He doesn't even make an effort to regain the rebel city. 
He had forsaken the God of his father and he had lost the respect and the loyalty of those who had kept the faith. It was because he had forsaken the Lord that they forsook him. Now, far from responding to these setbacks in a spirit of repentance, Jehoram reinforced the policies of Ahab and Jezebel by promoting the worship of idols throughout Judah. Verse 11, moreover, he made high places in the high hill country of Judah and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom and made Judah go astray. Now, in previous reigns, you may remember, a king's career would be assessed on the extent to which he removed the high places. And uh, all the good kings did that. They tried to get rid of the high places. A better king really went after it. Uh, a lesser king sort of went after it. But, but all the godly kings, it was a policy of opposing, of tampering down, of taking down the high places. Now, these high places were informal places of worship. At their best, they were indigenous forms of local worship. They may have been more or less fair, faithful. But the problem was the worship was now to be gathered at Jerusalem. The typology of Christ had been established there in the, in the, in the, in the rituals of the atoning blood. And so God had said, no more high places. We're going to worship at Jerusalem. But, but this was keeping going on. But, but it led, as you can imagine, to the infiltration of what's called syncretism. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. A little bit of Yahwism, a little bit of Baalism. And that's what took place in the, at the high places. Now, what we have is a new thing. In the time of Jehoram, not only did he not do a good job of tearing down the high places, no, he erected them. This is the first king of Judah actually to make the high places, we read, and to lead the people into idolatrous worship there. Leslie Allen notes, if Jehoshaphat's virtue was to seek the Lord, his son Jehoram's vice was to forsake him. Now, the chronicler comments that the revolts that Jehoram suffered came about as a result of this idolatry. Verse 10, because he had forsaken the Lord God of his father. And I hope we understand that the embrace of sin will typically have the effect of undermining the influence of anybody who has been given leadership. The way to be a good leader is to be a godly leader. That way you gain respect. People gain confidence there's beneficial results, but when but the bonds of trust are shaken, former supporters start reconsidering where their best interests lie when we turn from godliness into wickedness. Now, in this case, however, we're told explicitly that the loss of Edom and Libna was a divine act of judgment. It wasn't just the natural effects of sin. They're bad enough, but this is God's own act of judgment. Martin Selman writes, the principle is that God forsakes those who forsake him. There's the theology of the chronicler. It's a true statement that God forsakes those who forsake him. This isn't about Christians not doing best, their best all the time. No, this is those who forsake the Lord. They will be forsaken by him. The Lord viewed the worship of the false idols as spiritual adultery. He does so now. Whenever professing believers give their ultimate devotion to anything of the world, we invite painful chastisement from God. These were judgments. You know, the northern kingdom had, in fact, its entire life, it had been a sort of prodigal son. The northern kingdom had always been estranged from God the Father, and it paid a price for it. But the message to the chronicler telling us is that now the, the southern kingdom joined in that prodigal status Well, the message is clear. God's people must walk in God's ways, 
We must trust him alone for salvation. In that way alone can we be confident of his help in time of need. Well, the Bible's brief account of Jehoram's terrible reign notes the lack of any positive contribution at all to God's kingdom. We are told, however, of a fascinating interaction between Jehoram and probably the greatest of all the prophets in the Old Testament. He gets a letter from Elijah the Tishbite. Now, the record of Elijah's remarkable life is found in the book of Kings. Kings records his bitter and ultimately victorious contest with Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Now, this verse is the only mention, starting in verse 12, of Elijah in the book of Chronicles, a letter he sent to King Jehoram. Thus says the Lord God, verse 12, the God of your father. Now, Elijah is usually thought to have restricted his ministry to the northern kingdom, but there's no reason why he wouldn't have cared very deeply about the entirety of God's covenant people. I think especially, though, since Elijah was the sworn and particular enemy of the house of Omri, of Ahab and Jezebel, it makes sense that he would seek to intervene as that very evil rule now extended into the previously faithful south. Well, Elijah's message begins with a stinging rebuke to this wayward son of Jehoshaphat. Verses 12 to 13, You have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, or in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but have walked in the ways of the king of Israel, and have enticed Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom, as the house of Ahab led Israel into whoredom. And also you have killed your brothers of your father's house, who were better than you. Verses 12 to 13, now... Such a direct rebuke from such a godly figure as Elijah, you would think that this would be calculated to bring a man to repentance. But the problem was his hardened heart was beyond such a response. Uh, I think Elijah's remark that his slain brothers were better than you was a strike at his ego. And and by the way, it adds further questions about Jehoshaphat's judgment, you have to say it, in making this son his heir. Elijah's main point, however, may have been to convict the sin of slaying his brothers with no just cause. It was not for a good reason that he had done so. But no greater accusation could be made by Elijah than noting the parallel between Jehoram and Ahab. Both of them had enticed their people into whoredom against the Lord. It is a most stinging rebuke. Now, for all of his evil, Ahab had known some successes. The ancient secular history, by the way, it's almost its interesting. Secular history looks upon Ahab as a great king in the ancient world. He was a very successful military geopolitical figure, particularly his one great victory that really damaged the kingdom of Assyria. And yet the Bible shows that for all of the, all the strength he had, for all of his ability as a commander, he had the problem that God was constantly against him. My friends, that's a rather big problem. Well, Jehoram, who was far less able, he would suffer a similar fate. Here's the first prophecy that Elijah makes, verse 14. Behold, the Lord will bring a great plague on your people, your children, your wives, and all your possessions. Now, the message is God's not going to let your wickedness work. History shows that that is true on the grand scale. He does not let wickedness work. Well, it wouldn't work at all for Jehoram, God was going to cut down the line of his offspring together with his wives and his riches. 
Uh, the Protestant reformer Victor and Striegel comments that, uh, that uh, Jehoram, uh, Elijah wanted the king to know that the punishments that were coming were not by chance, but that these calamities were works of divine providence and judgment. And learning of this judgment in advance, by the way, it gave him an opportunity, a merciful opportunity to repent. Whenever God warns and threatens us, that's his mercy foretelling us so that we might repent. But his failure to do so gives us the benefit of realizing one more time that the Lord opposes the wicked and he does so with great might. Striegel quotes the unchanging principle of Romans 2 verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Don't be a Jehoram. Repent when the Bible points out your sin and your sinfulness. Otherwise, you are merely storing up wrath from a holy, sovereign God. Now, by this time, Ahab was actually dead. He had suffered a shameful death under God's judgment. Chapter 18 remembered it. But Elijah goes on to tell that Jehoram is going to perish even more terribly. Here's his second prophecy. And you yourself will have a severe sickness with a disease of your bowels until your bowels come out because of the disease day by day, verse 15. Here's a foretaste of that divine justice that awaits all people at the end of history. Those who sin but do not find forgiveness through Jesus. Bloodthirsty Jehoram is going to die under a judgment from God that recompenses his evil. He's going to be paid back in shame, in suffering, in misery, in an ignominious death. And we can scarcely imagine the effect. Imagine getting a prophecy like that from Elijah. No less a servant as Elijah the Tishbite. But he did not repent. He continued in the conspiracy with his evil wife. And before long, however, here's the problem. Before long, God's word starts coming true, as predicted. First of all, first there's going to be the loss of his wealth and his possessions and his children. Well, an enemy incursion strikes, yet another one. And it removes the king's children and possessions, verses 16 to 17. The Lord stirred up against Jehoram the anger of the Philistines and of the Arabians who were near the Ethiopians. They came up against Judah, invaded it, and carried away all the possessions they found that belonged to the king's house and also his sons and his wives, so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. Now, in the days of Jehoshaphat, his father, the Philistines were so impressed, they were so intimidated that they they sent money to gain peace. Jehoshaphat, how about we pay you? Let's make nice. You're not someone we want to tangle with. Oh, but there are no dummies. The world takes note that the world takes notice. When the people of God have turned from his ways and are wanting his blessing. It happens today with the culture towards the church, just like the Philistines towards the reign of Jehoram. And and so they put together a coalition of Arab tribes. We're not given any details, but they attacked suddenly and successfully. We don't know whether they reached Jerusalem or not. Probably not. Maybe Jehoram had dispersed his sons like his father had done in various fortresses, and those were captured. Actually, the next chapter is going to speak about a camp, so maybe they were, it seems like they were all together in a camp. This invasion conquered that camp. But what we do know is that according to the word of the Lord, he lost great riches and his sons and had his wives taken into captivity. Only his youngest son, Jehoahaz. Now, 
the youngest son remaining seems to be a reproach to him who had boasted of his firstborn status. All he has left is a lastborn son. In fulfilling Elijah's prophecy, he stands as a memorial to the truth that sin never pays. Here's a man who committed murder to secure his own line, but because God saw what he had done, God took his sons, he lost them all but one. Mark Boda writes, Jehoram's paranoid eradication of the royal house at the start of his reign comes back on his own head. By the end of his story, he's left with only one heir to his throne. Well, finally, to his undoubted horror, the second part of of Elijah's prophecy also came true. Verses 18 to 19, And after all this, the Lord struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great agony. Now, opinions regarding the precise nature of this sickness vary. One one theory is he had a rectal hemorrhage. That would be bad in the ancient world. What we do know is that his intestines came out. What's beyond doubt is that his illness was both painful and shameful as befitting his wickedness. In fact, something even worse than these, this fate awaits this same King Jehoram because there is a judgment that has not yet happened and he is going to face it. There's a greater judgment when Jesus returns. Jesus, who's the true and faithful heir of the house of his father David. And then, this is a future date even to us, then we read, the books will be open and the full extent of Jehoram's sins will be read like everyone else who's outside of Christ. Revelation 20, verse 12. And together with all who refuse to repent, even with the terrible warnings of God's word, those who will not look to Jesus for forgiveness through the atoning blood he provides. Well, Jehorah will suffer then the penalty of being thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation twenty fifteen. He will suffer a greater torment from God even than the sickness that struck his bowels. Well, so ended the brief but disastrous reign of Jehoshaphat's son, the chronicler, however, piles on with some final words of contempt. Look at verses 19 and 20. His people made no fire in his honor like the fires made for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he departed with no one's regret. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Deserving no honor, he received none. Even the people who had followed him into spiritual adultery made no fire in his honor. And while the rulers of the city, they allowed him to be buried in the city of David, there'd be no internment among the tombs of the kings. Very interestingly, there's some silence here that speaks loudly. You may remember in all the previous deaths, we're told, oh, by the way, there's more information in this source. And, And don't forget what's written here. There's none of that. Just forget about it. That's what he's saying. It's not even worth discussing him any further. Leslie Allen comments, he was best forgotten. It was a tragic obituary of a wasted life, one who failed to live up to his heritage. Maybe the only positive contribution from the short reign of evil King Jehoram is the warning that he gives us. 
Oh, the warning of the futility of seeking security through violence and ungodly policies. He anticipates that great warning of Hebrews 10.31. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, let's conclude by finding something encouraging, a encouraging postscript on the evil life of Jehoram. And and it's there. We need only to go back to verse 7, the chronicler's explanation for how the royal line survived this wicked rule. Let me read it again. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant he had made with David and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. You see, here was a hope still burning brightly centuries afterwards when the chroniclers made this record for his own generation, the record of wicked Jehoram's short reign. It shows that neither Satan nor sin nor even the gross betrayal of his own people will ever cause the Lord to forsake his promise given long ago to David regarding his true heir. God told him, he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. First Chronicles 22.10 Well, my friends, that son of which he wrote is the Lord Jesus Christ. And God brought him into the world through the virgin womb of Mary, into the line of the house of David, that he would be the savior of everyone who believes. And through many dangers, the Lord preserved David's royal line until Jesus should be born in the Bethlehem manger. And then the angels sang, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. I think maybe the most clear fulfillment of the chronicler's hope occurred when the lamp promised to David shone forth in full brightness when Jesus himself came to Jerusalem. All those great chapters in John's gospel where the Savior comes to the royal city and he cries out, telling the people who he is and of the salvation that he gives. Oh, what a great fulfillment when Jesus proclaimed himself the long-awaited Savior. And starting with Jehoram, there's, it's really a, a start, an evil start in this chapter. It's going to continue over several generations among God's people. A great darkness is going to descend through unbelief. It is post-Luke's tenebras. But greater even than in the days of gospel preaching and the Reformation, the coming of Jesus deserves that joyous claim post-Tenebros Luke's. After darkness, he brings light. Isn't that what Jesus himself said? I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. And if you'll believe in him, if you'll trust his sin-atoning death on your behalf, Well, your own darkness through sin will be replaced with light. The greatest light that has ever shined. Jesus promised this to you. He said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. Amen. Father, we thank you for the instructive and fascinating record of your your dealings with your people. And here we have such a terrible episode, Lord, and it gets worse. But Lord, you change not. 
Lord, you keep your promises. And Lord, we don't know what tomorrow brings. We, we pray for our families and for this church and other churches we love that, that those who come after us will carry on in faith, Lord, but we commit it all into your hands. All your promises are going to come true. And that means that Jesus is coming back. And he's going to gather all who trusted him, Jehoshaphat, uh, some of his godly sons who were slain. And Lord, we pray we'd be among them. Oh, we look forward to being gathered to our fathers in the faith, that we would dwell in the light of your light forever. Your lamp will never fail. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.